This is all found in Acts chapter 16. If you want to use your electronic device or you have a, an actual Bible, um, I would encourage you to open it to Acts 16, or you may just look at the slides on the wall. Okay? First century missionaries Paul and his associate Silas interrupted some slave owners' business scheme, and that got them into some serious trouble. Now let me set this up. The first Christian congregation on the European continent was located in ancient Philippi. Paul was a cross-cultural, church-planting missions specialist. And on his second missions trip, he founded the congregation at Philippi. Philippi was a part of ancient Greece and was one of a number of Roman colonies. Remember, Rome ruled the entire known world at that time. Those colonies were subjective to Roman governance, but still had some freedom and some autonomous privileges, including even being exempt uh, from some Roman taxation, which was severe, I might add. Philippi's residents spoke the Latin language, were considered Roman citizens, adopted Roman customs, and modeled the Philippi government uh, after that of Italian cities. Philippi had an extremely small Jewish population. Jewish tradition said that a minimum of 10 Jewish men um, that were heads of households were required to form a synagogue. There weren't enough Jewish men in Philippi to have a synagogue, so some devout Jewish women met together on the Sabbath at the Ganges River in order to pray and worship God. Paul found those women there, and he preached the gospel to them. One of them was a successful businesswoman named Lydia. She was a merchant that traded expensive purple dyed goods. Through that business, she had become a woman of some financial means. After hearing Paul preach, she received Jesus, and most historians believe the congregation at Philippi actually started in her own probably large house. That account is found in verses 12 through 15. Let's start at verse 16. Now what happened? As we went to prayer, that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. Verse 17. This girl followed Paul and us. This is Luke, the author of this book. And cried out saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaimed to us the way of salvation. So Paul and his associate Silas, and some others, were also going to that designated location besides the Ganges River, where those women met together to pray. It was during one of those times that a certain slave girl would follow them. Now, it's unusual, but it seems she had multiple masters. But it is said that this girl had a spirit of divination. In modern language, that meant she was a medium. A medium was someone who had contact with demons. According to verse 18, we learn she was actually demon-possessed. So she was a demoniac. That demon inside this girl enabled her to act as a professional psychic. She gave people psychic readings that foretold the future. And the money she earned from doing that, she turned over to her masters. Remember, she was a slave. The service she was able to provide was considered a valuable asset in ancient Greco-Roman culture. One historian said, both Greeks and Romans put a great stock on divination. Uh, no commander would set out on a major military campaign, nor would an emperor make an important decree without first consulting a medium to see how things might turn out. That slave girl's that had that gift was a veritable gold mine for her owners. Now notice what this psychic slave girl said about Paul and Silas. These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. It's apparent the slave received that information from the demon that was inside her. And please notice that what that demon said through her about Paul and Silas was absolutely true. A true statement. 
This demon even used biblical language to describe them. The wording, the Most High God, was wording used to describe the God of Israel in the Old Testament. Psalm 78, verse 35, Daniel 5, verse 18. Remember Satan's primary M.O. Satan's primary modus operandi is deception. And both he and his demons will speak truth if that is needed in order to deceive someone. The problem is that this slave girl, speaking truth about these men, agreeing with those missionaries, that gave off the impression that she was a part of them. And giving people that impression could have discredited Paul and Silas. Paul didn't want, Paul didn't need public relations from Satan. It was the right message, but the wrong messenger. And both message and messenger matter to God. Verse 18, and this she did for many days. This announcing who these men were wasn't just a one-time thing. She was doing this on an almost habitual basis. But Paul, greatly annoyed, notice that, Paul was greatly annoyed. This is interesting. Even Paul, the man considered the greatest Christian of all time, the man that authored 13 of the New Testament books, Paul experienced this emotion called annoyance. To be annoyed means to be exasperated, to be frustrated, to be put out, to get on someone's nerves. Married people understand that frustration, or, or at least hope he does. Uh, parents that have teenagers understand that. Pastors understand that. Someone asked me, what do you appreciate most about pastoring? I said, people. What do you appreciate least about pastoring? I said, people. <laughs> it's not wrong to be annoyed if, if we're annoyed at the right thing. And Paul was. Verse 18, and this she did for many days, but Paul, greatly annoyed, meaning super irritated, turned and said to the spirit. So Paul is addressing the demon inside this girl said to the spirit I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her and he this demonic spirit came out that very hour Paul exorcised not exorcised exorcised this demon out of this woman and since this demon had been the source of her psychic abilities once that demon had left so did those unusual abilities so she couldn't give psychic readings as she had been able to do before. This was upsetting to her masters. Verse 19, but when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. These slave owners, uh, aware that she was no longer possessed and she was unable to give psychic readings, were upset upset because these men had lost a serious source of income. The slave girl was useless to them now. Paul and Silas had caused them a huge financial loss. So these men had Paul and Silas arrested and literally dragged to the public square. That public square functioned as the public market, so uh, fruits, vegetables, food, other items uh, merchants brought were sold there. It also acted as a social epicenter of Philippi. For example, the unemployed would go there and wait for suitable jobs. And the magistrates judged court cases there. At that time, a plaintiff, such as these slave owners, could drag a defendant and or defendants, such as Paul and Silas, into the court that was held there and ask the judge to hear the case and render a verdict. And so this was all legal. The owners of this demon-possessed slave girl were acting according to Roman law in bringing Paul and Silas to the legal authorities. Each of the Roman co colonies were governed by magistrates, so Paul and Silas were brought to those men. Verse 20, And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, notice, these men being Jews, these men being Jews exceedingly troubled our city. So these accusers, uh, the owners of this slave girl, um, opened the proceedings in announcing to the court that Paul and Silas were creating serious widespread confusion. 
In part, though, the accusation had been made because these men were Jewish. Anti-Semitism has existed since ancient times, and it was the norm at this particular time. Emperor Claudius had earlier issued a decree and order expelling Jewish people from Rome. So being Jewish, Paul and Silas weren't that welcome in Philippi. The first charge was that these men were causing exceeding trouble and confusion throughout Philippi. That was charge one. That charge was bogus. That was a false accusation. Those missionaries did upset the owners of that slave girl because of their lost profits. But those men had not caused widespread confusion and trouble. It hadn't happened. Verse 21, and, meaning another charge, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. So the second charge was uh, that in preaching the gospel, Paul and Silas according to them, had been teaching a message and customs that were illegal for Romans to receive. That charge was actually true. That was a true accusation because there was a Roman law, although that particular law wasn't often enforced, there was a law on the books that forbid Roman citizens from practicing a religion that hadn't been sanctioned by the state. Christianity was an unsanctioned religion, so in a technical sense, it was illegal for Paul and Silas to preach Jesus Christ. But that wasn't a deterrent to those men, and it shouldn't be a deterrent to us. People, we must understand, we should prepare ourselves for persecution. I have cited a number of examples in Canada where Christians and churches are being persecuted. I just happened to see days ago in the UK. A pastor, probably in his 60s, been pastoring 35 years, he stood up and announced that marriage was between a man and a woman. That was considered homophobic and uh, hate speech, so someone heard that, uh, notified the authorities, and he was arrested. You think it can't happen here? I predict it will. Verse 22, Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. Those charges brought against these men were enough to manipulate a reaction, an overreaction, and stir up the crowd that had gathered in the public square. A mob mentality overtook them, and the people rose up against these two missionaries, then the magistrates themselves got caught up in that emotion and neglected to conduct those proceedings according to Roman standards of justice. Those magistrates, for instance, heard those charges brought against these men but didn't bother investigating those charges. Those magistrates didn't facilitate an appropriate hearing. Those men didn't give Paul and Silas a chance to even defend themselves. There was no presumption of innocence. A presumption of innocence means someone is presumed innocent until proven guilty. Instead, the magistrates ignored all of that that should have happened and had the robes ripped off Paul and Silas and then proceeded to have them beaten using rods. Those rods consisted of a bundle of sizable long sticks tied together. The men were basically stripped naked and beaten. It was a brutal beating, and all that people was illegal. There was no semblance of a just legal procedure. There was no due process. These were unjust court proceedings. Verse 23, And when they had laid many stripes on them, stripes meaning the red marks, bruises and cuts from the beatings, from these rods, they threw them into prison commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Verse 24, Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So after Paul and Silas had received those brutal beatings, those magistrates ordered them to be imprisoned. That was also an illegal act because these men had not received a fair and just hearing. Because Paul and Silas were considered high-profile prisoners, those magistrates ordered them to be put into maximum security. 
maximum security. The missionaries were then put into the innermost secure part of the prison and notice their feet were fastened in stocks. Stocks were a fastening device used on prisoners, similar to our modern handcuffs, except stocks were fastened around the ankles and not the wrist. And also those stocks were attached to the dungeon floor in a fixed, unmovable position. So these men were secure. None of that mattered, though, because no prison can hold those that God wants released. Verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, aloud praying, and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Paul and Silas considered themselves expendable. Those men weren't afraid to be persecuted and weren't afraid to die. It would have been difficult for those men, after all of this, to fall asleep because of the residual pain from the beatings. The dungeon environment was depressing. It was cold, dark, um, and uh, full of filth, probably rat-infested. Besides, their feet were fastened in those stocks we just mentioned, and those stocks were designed to induce painful cramping because their legs were spread as wide apart as possible. Imagine that. In spite of all the hardships, though, Paul and Silas had a positive attitude about being in prison. Notice that at midnight, those men were praying aloud and singing praises to God, worshiping Him, and the other prisoners listened to all of that. This was the first sacred concert ever held in Europe. And it was performed to a captive audience. The reason those men could praise God is because Paul and Silas understood what most Christians seem to forget, and that is praising God, worshiping Him, is not contingent on our circumstances. Philippians 4 verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. Again, I will say rejoice. If we are commanded to rejoice always, meaning rejoice at all times, then it is implied that we rejoice in all locations and in all situations, and that would include prison. Verse 26. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. There was a sudden, powerful earthquake. God initiated this. It's apparent. There was an earthquake that shook the entire prison, like the epicenter was underneath it. No one knows the magnitude of that earthquake, but it was so strong, it literally shook each of the cell doors off its hinges, and it shook the chains off all the prisoners and still left them unharmed. That's a crazy strong earthquake. Someone said that was the original jailhouse rock. That's what they said. I don't know if it was. Could have been. I don't know. 1957, Elvis Presley. 27, verse 27. And the king keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. The keeper of the prison was similar to the modern-day prison warden. He was responsible for those guards and responsible for each of the inmates. The jailer's house, this warden, was probably right next door to the actual prison itself. This all happened sometime after midnight. The jailer was in his house, we assume in his own bed, and this earthquake jarred him out of his sleep, probably knocked him out of bed. He grabbed some form of primitive light, rushed outside in the darkness, and soon it was apparent that all the prison doors had been opened. And he just assumed, seeing the open cell doors, he assumed that all the prisoners had escaped. That would be the normal thing to assume, because that's what inmates would do. So this jailer assumed all the prisoners had escaped, and he understood that if just one prisoner had escaped, no matter what caused that escape, even if it wasn't due to him, his negligence or something, it didn't matter. The Roman authorities would arrest him, torture him, and execute him. He didn't want that pain and humiliation from the authorities, so he decided to commit suicide. But before he could do that, 
Notice verse 28, but Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Paul was still inside this dungeon, as were all the other inmates. He is probably, though, moving toward the entrance, and in doing so, he was made aware that this jailer was about to commit suicide, and so he screamed to this jailer to stop. This earthquake was miraculous. But the fact all the inmates were still there and no one had even attempted to escape was also miraculous. Verse 29, Then he called for a light, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. This jailer called for someone to bring him a better light and he rushed inside the prison to see Paul and Silas. This whole earthquake ordeal had terrified him. I mean, he's probably confused. I mean, the, the prison is wide open and no one has left. This is crazy what's happening. He was aware of the message Paul and Silas had preached, the message that got them into trouble. Um, he, he was aware, I believe, that this earthquake acted as a supernatural confirmation of that message from these men. And so this man had a desire to have what these missionaries had. He heard them praying. He heard them singing. He wanted that. Verse 30, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? No doubt he first made sure the other prisoners were secure, as he was responsible to do that. He is the warden. Then he brought Paul and Silas outside the prison itself and asked them the most important question that can ever be asked of someone. That question was, What must I do to be saved? Some people that are determined to um, twist the meaning of this text um, argue that this question was actually about this jailer being saved from possible potential Roman punishment. No, that's nonsensical. Remember, no prisoners had escaped. So he's not susceptible to being punished. He's not in trouble with the authorities. This wasn't about that. This jailer wanted to be saved from his sins. He wanted to be saved from the eternal punishment on those sins. And that is apparent if we continue reading. This was a direct and simple question. And Paul and Silas gave him a direct and simple answer. Verse 31. So they said, in unison, I'm sure, in response to that question, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Let me interject a footnote. Don't miss this. Some people have misunderstood that last statement, you and your household, to teach what is called household salvation. Household salvation is the idea that entire families and entire households are saved because the father becomes a Christian. So if the man, being the representative head of the household, receives Jesus, then all the members of that household are also considered Christians by default based on the decision of the father. People, there is no such thing as household salvation unless each member of that household receives Jesus for himself. Because we are each responsible for our own spiritual status. We cannot experience salvation for someone else. The statement that is made, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household, means if the father, the representative head of that household, if the man of the house believes on Jesus, then he can influence because he has influence, he can exert influence on each other member of his household to also believe on Jesus. That's what my own biological father did. He became a Christian first. My father had been in the Navy, World War II. He had survived, and this is documented, the worst typhoon in naval history in the South Pacific. He should have died. He survived that. He moved to Kansas City. And uh, I believe at that time he was in photography school. I didn't even know much about I never saw my dad with a camera, but apparently he was. And, and he was listening to 
an evangelist on the radio named Charles E. Fuller. If Fuller sounds familiar, he founded Fuller Seminary. Um, the program was called the Old Fashioned Revival Hour. Uh, Charles Fuller held massive services at the Long Beach Municipal Auditorium. It has since been torn down, but it was a huge structure and thousands came. He broadcast from there and attracted millions of listeners. And my father, I don't know how he found him, but he started listening to Charles E. Fuller on the radio. And one Sunday afternoon, my father got on his knees in his apartment after listening to a broadcast, and he prayed, and he committed his life to Jesus. It started there. He then influenced my mother to become a Christian. And then in time, I received Jesus. And then over time, each of my four siblings did the same thing. That's what Paul meant. That this man, if he would believe, could start a spiritual chain reaction that would include each member of his household. So Paul said, in answer to that question, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now notice, there was no mention of baptism in that statement. No mention was made of catechism classes and confirmation. No mention was made of the sacraments and or other religious rituals. No mention was made of maintaining some certain standard of moral excellence. No, none of that. The one and only requirement to receiving salvation was and still is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Question, what does that mean? What does it mean to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? It begins, notice, begins through believing two fundamental things about Jesus. First, it means to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Jesus was who he said he was. John 20, verse 31. But these... These is a reference to those miracles Jesus had performed that John, the human author of that book, included in this gospel. So these miracles are written, John said. Why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Christ means Messiah. It is the Greek counterpart to the Hebrew word Messiah. The Son of God. The Son of God, meaning God Himself in actual human form. That happened at Bethlehem. Jesus claimed to be the promised Jewish Messiah, this ultimate ruler He promised His people. And He claimed to be God's Son, meaning God in human form and flesh. So in part, to believe on Jesus means to believe that Jesus was who He said He was. Second, it means to believe that Jesus did what he said he did. It means to believe that Jesus did what he said he did. Now we're going to comment more on this in just a moment. But what did Jesus do? Jesus died for our sins. He was buried in the grave. And then he was resurrected from the dead. People, these are essentials. To believe means to accept something as being true. But it means more than just that. Accepting those basic essential facts about Jesus we just mentioned is a non-negotiable part of believing on Jesus, but it's more than just that. There are two essential components to believing in some, something, or in this case, believing on someone. First, there was an intellectual component. An intellectual component. We must use our minds to determine if something about someone is true. The two things we just mentioned agreeing that Jesus was who he said he was, agreeing that Jesus did what he said he did, those things are part of this intellectual component. And believing has to start there in the mind. Second, there's a volitional component. A volitional component. Volition means the use of someone's will. Once we have determined that something about that someone is true, then we must exercise our volition and will ourselves to act on what our intellect has determined is true. We must act. There has to be action or belief doesn't exist. The object lesson I have used hundreds, probably thousands of times 
in personal evangelism on a private basis is a chair, or in this case, I'm using a stool. Um, now, in using this stool, I first am evaluating this stool. I pick it up and see what it's made of. It's light, but it's, it seems to be made of strong material. A couple bolts are loose here a little bit, but anyway. Um, it's not made out of balsa wood. I mean, this is strong wood, and it's screwed together, bolted together. And uh, it seems to be, have been assembled as it should have been. So from an intellectual perspective, I can stand here, and I can present an argument, an intellectual argument, that this stool is capable of supporting my entire body weight, which is substantial at this moment. But it's capable. I just believe it is. Okay? That's my initial inspection. But the intellectual component is just the first part to the believing on this stool. There is still a volitional component. That volitional component means acting on what I now am convinced is true about this stool. Remember the second stage. To believing means exercising our volition and trusting what we have determined to be true. Trusting means putting our confidence in putting our reliance in. So, if I am going to fully believe on that chair, I first am convinced in my mind it's capable of supporting me, but then I have to act on what my mind has determined is true, and I have to do what? I have to sit on the stool. And I am. Now, notice I'm not hanging on the pulpit to help me support my weight. No, I'm putting all my trust, all my reliance all my confidence in this stool ability to hold me up. And it is. But it's making noises makes me scared. I don't know what's this. <laughs> Feels like it's going to collapse. Anyway, okay. To believe on Jesus first means we must be convinced from an intellectual perspective that the essential facts about Jesus are true. This is why I gravitate toward apologetics. I love apologetics defending the Christian faith, um, the reasons why we know it is true. Uh, we have to determine Jesus is who he said he was, Jesus did what he said he did, but if we stop there, then we have stopped short of actual believing. To believe, we must exercise volition and act on what our intellect has convinced us is true and trust Jesus to do for us what he wants to do, and that is save us from our sins. That means we must sit on the Jesus stool. We must. There are congregations full of sincere religious people that from an intellectual perspective agree to the Christian basics but have never sat on the Jesus stool. These people have never humbled themselves, have never admitted to God their sinfulness and inability to save themselves and have never said something to the effect and although not the same exact wording, but the same exact intent said, Jesus, I need you. I want you. I'm trusting you to be my Savior. I want you to forgive my sins, and I want to follow you the rest of my life. How many people in the church have never done that, have never sat on the Jesus stool? The media is talking about the vaccine. Some of you have had the vaccine. I don't believe this is true of the current vaccine. It's a different process. But a typical vaccine is where someone is inoculated with a small, small dosage of the disease so that they won't get the disease. People are inoculated with Christianity, but they've never had the disease. They've never sat on the Jesus stool. I am an admitted Titanic enthusiast. I've seen the Titanic exhibit three different times once in San Francisco and twice at the Luxor in Vegas. I cannot recommend that exhibit enough. To me, the entire Titanic experience is, a, is fascinating. Piece of trivia, the last survivor from the Titanic was Melvina Dean. She died in 2009 at age 97. She was just two months of age aboard the Titanic when the Titanic went under. She survived her brother survived, her mother survived, her father did not. 
There have been some incredible human interest stories emerge from the Titanic disaster that happened on April 14, 1912. We just commemorated the 109th anniversary, anniversary of that disaster. One that most people have never heard about is a pastor from Scotland named John Harper. John Harper at that time pastored a sizable Baptist congregation in London. He was a widower. And at age 39, Reverend Harper and his six-year-old daughter, Nana, had boarded the Titanic en route to Chicago. He had been invited to Chicago. He was scheduled to preach a series of meetings at the famous Moody Church there. He was a successful pastor and also a gifted evangelist. Another pastor said about him, quote, He was a great open-air preacher and could always attract large and appreciative audiences. An evangelist named W.D. Dunn made this admission, quote, I can say that no pastor, nor teacher, nor evangelist has ever moved my inner being more than the pleading and preaching of John Harper. He was always on fire for God and souls. How often I have heard him say, when lying on his face before God, covered in perspiration, O oh God, Oh God, give me souls or I die. I'm not sure if such a person as that even exists now. I wish that were me, but I'm ashamed to say it's not. As the Titanic started to sink, Harper ran across the deck from person to person, begging them to receive Christ. He was heard to shout, Women, children, and the unsaved in the lifeboats. Makes sense. So they'd have another chance at salvation. One man in anger rejected Harper's message. So Harper took off his own life jacket, gave it to him, telling him, you need this more than me. He kissed his daughter goodbye, gave her to someone in a lifeboat, and then as the ship was about to make its final descent into the deep, Harper dove into the frigid North Atlantic Ocean, and he swam to where people were clinging to pieces of wreckage and debris. He repeated this response to Paul, to this Philippian jailer. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He begged people to receive Jesus. He begged people to believe until he was overcome with hypothermia and drowned. Four years after the Titanic sank, some of the survivors met in Ontario, Canada. And one of them recounted his interaction with John Harper. He said he was clinging to a piece of the ship's debris. When Harper swam up to him and begged him, begged him to believe on Jesus and be saved, he rejected that invitation. He wasn't interested. But then seconds later, Harper approached him a second time, and that time he reconsidered. And in that water, hanging on to that piece of wreckage, this man prayed and said yes to Jesus. He cried out to Jesus and was saved. Harper drowned soon after that, but this man was rescued by a lifeboat. After he shared that account at that survivor's meeting, he confessed, quote, I am the last convert of John Harper. I'm sure that gentleman that almost drowned was grateful that the requirement for salvation wasn't some complicated religious procedure or a succession of good deeds he must do so he could earn himself spiritual credits. No, because hanging on to a piece of wreckage and debris in the freezing cold water 2.37 miles above the ocean floor, he would not have been able to do those things. But he didn't have to do those things because the requirement for salvation is simple. Believe. Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you sh shall be saved. Verse 32. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him, meaning Paul and Silas huh, expounded on the gospel to this jailer and to all who were in his house. Paul and Silas didn't just speak to this jailer, but spoke to all those that were part of his household. This could have included household servants and other relatives that might have been visiting. Verse 33, And he, this jailer, this prison warden, took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately, notice, immediately, 
he, this jailer, and his family were baptized. Remember these men had been beaten with rods. It had been a severe beating. So this jailer cleaned their wounds from that scourging. And then this man and the different eligible members of his household were baptized. Eligible members, meaning those household members that had believed on Jesus for themselves, and in doing that were now eligible to be baptized. And notice this man's household wasted no time in being baptized. None of them waited until the morning. All of them were baptized in the middle of the night. Let me interject a footnote. Inside Christendom, there are two different positions on baptism. One is called credo-baptism. Credo-baptism. The prefix credo is from the Latin word for creed. And that means, I believe. I believe. Credo-baptism represents someone that has believed a particular doctrine or creed, such as believing the creeds and doctrines of the Christian faith. Credo-baptism teaches that someone first believes on Jesus, receives salvation, and then is baptized as a public announcement of that decision. Paul practiced credo-baptism, and we do the same. Each person we baptized is someone that has earlier believed on Jesus. A second uh, perspective or position is pedo-baptism. Some pronounce it pedo-baptism. Um, pedo, pedo, it doesn't matter. The Greek prefix pedo or pedo means child. Child. So pedo-baptism is infant baptism or christening. Sometimes both words are used on an interchangeable basis. But there's a difference between them. Christening started around the 14th century. The word christen means to name. So christening is a ceremonial naming. That's the reason ships are christened. And then, uh, and then given a name. Those ships are given a name, a formal name, and then launched. In a religious sense, christening means baptizing a child and then announcing the name of that child. So christenings are baptisms, but most baptisms are not christenings. From my perspective, christening isn't a bad thing per se, but it's a confusing thing because it involves baptizing infants, and we don't baptize infants because infant baptism is never mentioned or practiced in Scripture. The problem is, pedo-baptismal advocates, though, use this particular text we just read to support that position. Verse 33 reads that this man's entire household was baptized. And according to this pedo-baptism argument, that meant this man's household included infants and babies and smaller children. So according to this argument, Paul practiced infant baptism as some Christian denominations still do now. But that argument is based on a false premise. That's false premises that this man's household included infants, babies, and smaller children. People, that is pure conjecture because the text doesn't mention children. Children are nowhere found in this narrative. The text actually teaches there were no infants, no babies, and no smaller children in this man's household, as we're going to see. It is erroneous to assume, because we use the word household, that includes infants, babies, and smaller children. Most households do not have smaller children. How many of you, in your household, where you are, do not have infants, babies, or smaller children? Raise your hand. How many of you? That's our house. We're old people. We just have old people in our household. We did have infants, babies, and smaller children, but they, we got rid of them. Anyway, so, <laughs> except, for, except for one, but that's only temporary. Anyway, um, so we can't make that assumption. That just because you see the word household, that includes infants, babies, and smaller children. No, that's conjecture. That interpretation, though, is a classic example of what we call eisegesis. And I understand we have severe time limitations. We're going to go just a bit over. I'm sorry, but I, I need to touch on this. I'm just touching. There are two opposing approaches to biblical interpretation. And those approaches are exegesis and eisegesis. 
exegesis and eisegesis. Notice exegesis, and this is the correct approach, is when someone using the literal, historical, grammatical, interpretive method pulls from the biblical text, meaning extracts out of the biblical text the actual, original, intended meaning of the text. It's important we must use the literal, historical, grammatical, interpretive method. Literal, literal except where figurative language is warranted. Historical, because a text cannot be understood apart from its historical context. And grammatical, because language matters, especially the original language of Scripture, Hebrew and Greek. So someone using a literal, historical, grammatical, interpreting method pulls out from the biblical text the actual, original, intended meaning of that text. We should practice exegesis, because otherwise we could misrepresent what God has said. Eisegesis is the opposite. Eisegesis is when someone imposes onto the biblical text his own subjective ideas, biases, presuppositions, and personal agenda. And in doing that, he forces his own interpretation on the text. This is not good. The result is that eisegesis causes the text to mean something other than what God intended it to mean. We cannot do that in good conscience. Now, don't miss this. Pedo-baptism proponents, and I'm sure are sincere Christians. Well, some of them are. I don't know all of them. But these people use eisegesis to impose infant baptism onto this text. And that's unacceptable. That is an illegitimate interpretation. It is unwarranted because it's not there. Children are not mentioned. Not implied, not inferred, not there. The text doesn't mention if there were children in this man's household, but pre-baptism people argue that infants, babies, smaller children must have been part of this man's household. That is pure conjecture, as we have just proven. And that idea has been imposed onto the text. That cannot be the case, because if there were children in this man's household, we know from verse 34, that those children were old enough and mature enough to believe on Jesus Christ for themselves. Read verse 34. Now when he, this jailer, had brought them into his house, Paul and Silas, and probably some others, he set food before them, he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. His entire, entire household and we don't know what that consisted of. But it doesn't matter. Every member of his entire household believed on God. This jailer believed and was then baptized. Each member of his household also believed and was then baptized. That meant that each member of his household was old enough and mature enough to be able to believe for themselves. There were no infants, no babies, no smaller children present in his household. No one was baptized that was too immature to believe. The divine order is to first believe and then afterwards be baptized where baptism is not part of and baptism does not contribute to someone's salvation. Baptism is an act separate from believing on Jesus for salvation. So the sequence is someone first needs to believe on Jesus Christ, receive salvation, and then after salvation, he is then eligible to be baptized. That is the divine order. The reason someone should be baptized is because baptism in water is the public announcement of someone's salvation. Notice the definition. Christian baptism in water is when someone both announces and demonstrates, demonstrates through the means of a visual aid, demonstrates in a public sense his personal, previous, personal and private decision to both believe on and receive Jesus Christ. He is demonstrating his previous decision. Someone's salvation is to be previous prior to his baptism or else that baptism is meaningless. It is to be personal. Salvation is between ourselves and Jesus. No one else. Salvation is the ultimate, intimate, personal decision. Private? I know people who have responded to a public invitation at a Billy Graham crusade, at a Greg Laurie Harvest crusade, and at that 
crusade, there were in attendance 50, 60, 70,000 people. And these people responded and went downfield, met a counselor, prayed and received Christ. I mean, it's public, but it's still private because that decision privately happened, transpired in someone's heart. That's baptism. In essence, baptism is an object lesson that illustrates the gospel. The word gospel means good news. Good news. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, defines the Christian gospel. Verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand. Verse 2, By which, meaning by this gospel, Paul said he preached to them at Corinth. By which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Meaning unless you just went through the motions and weren't sincere. And then, in that case, nothing happened. Verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Verse 4, And that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. According to the Scriptures, the Gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news, or this awesome announcement, that Jesus died for our sins, He was buried, and then He was resurrected from the dead, and that through believing on Him and His sacrifice for our sin, we can receive salvation. People, that is the Christian gospel. According to Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, and there's not enough time to turn there, baptism in water pictures that gospel. Someone stands in the water, and that vertical posture of someone standing there illustrates the same vertical posture Jesus assumed in his death on a cross. Then as that person is lowered underneath the water, that illustrates Jesus being brought down from the cross and being dead, he was laid flat on his back in the grave. And then we bring that person up out of the water and that illustrates how Jesus was resurrected from the dead and made alive. So baptism in water illustrates the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's the essence of the gospel. It's interesting, though, that baptism through immersion, as we do, as the New Testament teaches, baptism through immersion, meaning being submerged underneath the water, is the only baptismal mode that illustrates that gospel. Some denominations baptize through pouring or sprinkling water onto someone. And those modes cannot illustrate the death burial and resurrection of Jesus. So through the means and motions of baptism, someone is announcing in public to all that are present that he believes that Jesus died for his sins, that Jesus was buried in the grave, and that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, and that he has believed on that Jesus and is trusting him for his salvation. Charles Swindoll said, the prolific author, the act of baptism is a public declaration which in essence says, I belong to Jesus Christ. I identify with His death for me. And by being raised up out of the water, I identify with a new kind of life that I could never live on my own, but by His power I will be able to experience. I have been born again, and that's why I want to display what has happened to me in my life. That's baptism. To conclude this message, I want us to see a short video clip of a baptism. We have a sizable number of people that have come into our church since this virus started almost 14 months ago. And none of them have seen one of our baptisms since we haven't been able to baptize since then. Please understand, some things we do here are unique to us. That's the reason our podcast is called Uncommon Preaching. Uh, because preaching here is different than the norm. Did not say and would never say that it's better. It's just very different. How we administer communion is unique to us. We're different from other congregations in how we serve communion. How we baptize is unique to us. Other congregations do not practice baptism as we do. So since a significant percentage of our congregation has never witnessed that, I want us to see a baptism. Some of us were here when this happened. This is Tim Crutch's baptism. Tim is on a business trip to the East Coast this morning, uh, so he's there, and I'm assuming he's watching this live stream. Uh, 
since this service is live stream, I'm sure he is. He and Nicole are a faithful part of our congregation, and I'm so, so grateful God has brought them to us. Um, I, I want us to watch this, because Tim has a unique story, as everyone has a story, and I want you to hear that story. So watch this. Uh, this gentleman is Tim Crutch. And Tim and Nicole have been attending our church for a number of months. Actually, I believe Nicole started coming maybe last November, October. If I'm not mistaken, they moved here from Modesto, California, which is a good place to move from. And uh, they came here. Uh, Tim is still employed. He hasn't retired just yet. He's in management for a large moving uh, freight trucking company and uh, does have to travel quite a bit. Uh, Nicole has been a Christian for a long time and uh, she loves the Lord, attended Big Valley Grace Church and Modesto and other churches. And, uh, but Tim, um, he was raised in Catholicism, had a lot of questions, a lot of skepticism, I understand that, and just wasn't into it. But for some reason, uh, Nicole invited him not long after she started coming to visit with her, and he started coming. He would visit. Now, Tim is different in that he wants to sit on the front row. He sits right here in the center section on the front row, someplace most of you have never been. <laughs> it's a good seat right there. Anyway, but he likes to be right there. He said, I don't want distractions. That's what I want. And he's there every Sunday. And even sometimes when Nicole would have to be out of town to visit her daughter or something like that or whatever, he would still come. And he just continued to come. And I could see that maybe God was working on him. And so we started talking. I said, Tim, I want to get together with you. I want to come over. And he said, yeah, let's do that. And, but he was out of town so much, and we just couldn't do it. Finally, I said, Tim, let's... Let's do it. Let's get a date. Well, they invited Hopi and I over to their house. Now, it was special. You don't have to do this if you invite us over. She fixed a phenomenal meal, so she fed us, and that was awesome. But uh, I was so focused on this guy because I wanted him to have Jesus. And uh, we said, and I went, shared the gospel with him and shared the gospel, and, and I just got down to the bottom line, and I said, Tim, do you want to sign on the line for Jesus today? Do you want to give him your heart and your life and he said, yes, that's what I want to do. This woman prayed off and on for her husband to accept Christ 23 years. And he came to Christ on September the 5th this year, this, this year on a Wednesday night at their home. And I tell you, I am so excited. It is an awesome privilege to be able to baptize Tim today. It's awesome. Tim, I'm proud of you. Are you trusting Jesus and only Jesus as your Savior and forgiver? Yes. Are you determined to follow Jesus the rest of your life? Yes. That's wonderful. In obedience to the command of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and upon the public profession of your faith you just made in him, I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. You got it? Thank you. Congratulations. Great. Thank you. Congratulations. That's awesome. Would you bow your heads with me, please? I have two brief questions as our worship team comes, just two questions. Number one, have you sat on the Jesus chair? Did you intellectually agree to the fundamental facts of Christianity, that Jesus was who he said he was and Jesus did what he said he did? And then after agreeing to those facts, have you acted on them? Have you humbled yourselves before God and said, Jesus, I need you. I want you to in my life. I need a Savior. You're the only available Savior. Please come into my life. Forgive me. Take me to heaven someday. Have you sat on the Jesus chair? I hope you have. But if you have not, if there's a doubt, if there's a question as to whether you have or not, please, I beg you, see me after the service. I can stay this afternoon. Or I can set up an appointment soon where we can sit down. I'll explain more from the Scripture, and you can have Christ yourself. I hope you'll do that. I really do. But if you have sat in that Jesus chair and you know you're saved, you are forgiven, but you've never gone public with that. You've never been baptized in water since then. Uh, this is something new for you. You just haven't. Um, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to sign up on that insert that's in the worship folder. Or if you don't have a worship folder, see me after the service and we'll sign you up. And I'll give you more details in a week. But I want you to go public. I want you to announce to everyone, yes, I have Jesus. I've accepted him. He is my Lord. He's my leader. And I love him. And I want you to know it. I hope you'll do that. It's not an option. 
It's a command. I hope you'll be obedient to God. Father, thank you for this time. I pray you'll work in every heart. I don't know what every need is. I just don't. I don't because, well, because I don't know hearts. Only you do. But I pray that those who have never sat on that Jesus chair will will decide to do that today. And those who have sat but have never gone public with that decision, that will, they will decide to do that in baptism in two weeks. So we commit this to you. Please do a work in their hearts, in their lives, and help them to be obedient to you. And I pray and I thank you in the name of your special son, Jesus. Amen.